Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Welcome back, everybody. Sorry for the slight delay in the COVID bullet points. This is COVID number 25 from the Echo that was done on July 7th. So starting out, we had uh, Jerrica Burgi, Burgi. Burge. Burge. <laughs> uh, the U of M professor and vice chair of research. And today she was talking about, I love that title. He just loves her title. I keep saying it. Col- collaborating with... Uh, the Department of Family Practice and the Mayo Clinic, they're actually studying a uh, placebo versus a nutraceutical in COVID. Uh, and I think it's more kind of whether they get decreased severity of infections and evaluate the safety and tolerability of this nutraceutical in the elderly population. So it's uh, basically an unregulated... Super vitamin? It's like an unregulated super vitamin of some sort. But uh, more information to come. I guess. Yes. All right. Well, then we uh, moved on to Dr. Robin Patel, who came back. She is a very important human, of course, Um, professor of microbiology at Mayo Clinic Rochester, professor of medicine, Elizabeth P. and Robert E. Allen, professor of individual medicine, microbiologist extraordinaire. Okay. But she was a former president of the Society of Microbiology. There you go. Just moved on. So... (laughs) Basically, she is on this Infectious Disease Society of America group, of course. And basically, it's a group of, what, roughly 15 or so um, people of all different type specialties, infectious disease, microbiologists, methodologists. And they release guidelines, basically, on the diagnosis of COVID-19. So this is all evidence-based, peer-reviewed, systematic she said typically these kind of guidelines that are released, which are for pretty much anything, are take months to years to put together. But of course, with COVID, we kind of fly by the seat of the pants as there's so many new things coming out every single day that you can't possibly wait for it all to come out because you'd be way behind. Yeah, I think she said they actually met every night for 14 days. Isn't that crazy? Yep, trying to get this done. So they wanted to move fast. So they came up with a lot of recommendations, actually 15. 15. Uh, but to focus on this is the viral RNA guideline. So this is the diagnosis with that the nucleic acid amplification test diagnosis. And they are currently working on the antibody guidelines. So stay tuned. She's going to come back. She stated when those are done and give us those information things too. So recommendation one, uh, their panel actually recommended uh, this uh nucleic acid amplification test in symptomatic individuals in the community that are suspected of having COVID-19, even if the clinical suspicion for COVID-19 was low. So basically, if you have any symptom, which is pretty much anything for COVID at this point, but if you have any symptom, you should get tested, even yep. if you don't actually think that's what it is. Now, this was a strong recommendation, but again, very low certainty of evidence at this point. Because there was, there is no evidence. Not yet. So they felt that uh, really the clinical assessment alone is really not accurate in predicting it. And uh, the panel felt that the timeliness of the testing is essential to really impact individual care uh, and and public health decisions. So, uh, again, aggressive testing, which I think has been seen all over the world. 
But even better, they recommended that testing should be resulted within 48 hours, which is kind of humorous at this point. Yeah. Uh, and she talked a little bit about that, too, that some of this uh, is really limited by supply chain. Mm-hmm. So, According to their recommendations, they looked at the symptoms, uh, pointing out that their symptoms, you know, and this is a broad range. You know, we typically think about that five to seven day range, but symptoms are appearing anywhere between two and 14 days after exposure. So that's a long window. But of course, focusing on the respiratory symptoms that we know, just alone cough or shortness of breath qualifies otherwise two of the two of these other symptoms fever chills shaking with chills myalgias headaches sore throat and the loss of taste or smell yeah and actually i think anybody with loss of taste or smell needs to get tested right and these were the guidelines that came out uh they were published on may 6th so a lot of the taste and smell stuff has come out more recently than that and so i wonder if that will move up into a strong by itself recommendation but how about recommendation two so the panel suggested collecting a nasal pharyngeal or mid-turbinate or nasal swab rather than an oral pharyngeal swab or saliva alone. And so this is important. You know, there's a lot of different what is the best test, but it really is. Um, they don't really know what is the best test, of course, but personal swabbing is that a thing should you do multiple of these all at the same time there's really no evidence Um, and this is a conditional recommendation again very low certainty of evidence but one of the interesting things she made a comment at the end that this uh, this recommendation really didn't address this combination specimen types where they'll do a couple different swabs and combine it uh, and there's because of such a lack of evidence so not being done recommendation number three Kurt. Well, the panel suggested that nasal and mid-turbinate, and this was related a little to the last one. And she said, star asterisks, this one, this is important. Yeah. These swab specimens may be collected for testing by either patients or healthcare workers uh, if they are symptomatic, and especially with upper respiratory tract infections or influenza-like illnesses, and really anybody suspected of having COVID-19. Again, conditional recommendation and very low certainty of evidence. The one thing she really pointed out, which I think is hugely important, is that the appropriate specimen collection, you need to get a good specimen, but then you also need to get it to the lab. You know, that's critical. So when you're in the middle of nowhere like we are, they don't just mean swab and get to your lab. They mean swab and get to the testing facility. So that whole transportation aspect, is it being transported in the proper media? Is it the right temperature? That's all super important. Yeah, and there's been a lot a lot of talk about self-collection. And the majority of the self-collection studies that have been done have been on people who were actually self-collecting while some healthcare worker was watching. Uh, but she did actually point out the data on self-collection in asymptomatic individuals is really currently unavailable. So um, I don't think that they really feel like that's a, that's a big thing at this point. Correct. And she did uh, release some general instructions for swab-based testing. I'm not going to read them all because it's quite comprehensive, but it really talks about in different situations who should do the testing, what you actually need, uh, and then how to do it. And I mean, the detail of you need to tip your head back, you need to put it straight in, not up towards the eyes. I think this is something that anybody who's doing the the specimen collection should read. Um, And I'm pretty sure every lab should probably have this table available. Yeah. Recommendation four. So the panel suggested a strategy of initially obtaining that upper respiratory tract sample 
rather than a lower respiratory sample uh, in hospitalized patients. Um, and so, you know, if that initial upper respiratory sample was negative and people are still pretty suspicious, well, then the next step, of course, is getting that lower respiratory tract sample. So they feel that's the backup uh, rather than going right to the upper respiratory or lower respiratory um, So sample. start in the upper. Start in the upper. But don't necessarily repeat in upper if the first one was negative, which brings to recommendation number five. Uh, as opposed to, oh, I lied. Part of recommendation number four is, especially if you're s- suspicious and if they have um, pulmonary or pneumonia-like symptoms, then you do for sure jump to that lower swab yeah, rather than the upper. Then recommendation number five, I'm sorry. Yeah, but again, in that four, they talked a little bit about like if you're in the hospital, maybe you should be able to get that test done in 24 hours. Uh, and I know ours is mostly an hour, uh, but yeah, they want it right away. Well, yeah, and it just depends on the availability of testing again. Supply chain, supply chain, supply chain. And she talks about that later, so we'll get to that. But Recommendation five, I'll, you wanted to get there? Go ahead. <laughs> they, they suggest performing a single viral RNA test and not repeating it in symptomatic people who you really have a low suspicion of. So back to that first one, if you have any type of symptom, you should swab. But if it's a low clinical suspicion, don't re-swab if it was negative. So there is some clinical judgment in here. If it's negative, move on. Unless, of course, you have a high suspicion, then consider the lower respiratory. Again, a recommendation, but low certainty of evidence. So They all have low certainty of evidence because... I'm just going to keep saying that. Okay. Um, recommendation six. Now, they suggest repeating the viral RNA testing when the initial test is negative in symptomatic people with an intermediate or high clinical suspicion of COVID-19. So obviously somebody intubated, somebody short of breath, hypoxic, all those things, we should be repeating that. Uh, Generally within 24 to 48 hours, uh, once we see that first one is negative. There you go. Again, conditional recommendation, low certainty of evidence. Yeah, but common sense. Correct. So recommendations seven and eight are actually combined in the recommendation thing, but they don't make any recommendations for or against using a rapid. So this is the test time less than one hour. This is versus a standard RNA testing in symptomatic individuals suspecting of having COVID. So she thinks that as a microbiologist, that all testing should be done as quickly as possible. That is a direct quote. But the the, the ones that are out there rapid test kind of marketed, um, they do not make any recommendations for these at all. They do suggest a SARS-CoV-2 RNA testing in asymptomatic individuals who are known or suspected to have been exposed. So even if you don't have any symptoms, but you have known exposure, you should be swabbed. There you go. And this is direct contact with a lab-confirmed case and a person who is residing in congregate settings. So, of course, long-term care, correctional facilities, cruise ships, factories, yada, yada, where there was an outbreak. Hmm. So does that mean every place where there's an outbreak? You know, in Minnesota, we've had a lot of these meet whatever. Everybody working in that building should be tested? If they walked by somebody who had a positive, I hmm. suspect. One of the things it says that uh, one of the last points she had actually is that obviously this is all dependent on the availability of testing resources. There you go. Again. But there is an asterisk in here, too. Risk of con- contracting may vary under different exposure conditions. And this goes back several weeks, back to the, the one case here with the, they thought it was helping airflow with the big fans, yet there's no, um, you know, 
airflow to the outside world. So you're just kind of spreading the virus through the air. Yes. Recommendation nine. Go for it. I just did seven and eight. Uh, the panel suggested that SARS-CoV-2 RNA testing in asymptomatic individuals with no known contact of COVID-19 who are being hospitalized in areas with low prevalence in the community should not be tested. So those, so if it's now, it's a little different than what we're doing currently in our hospital, where if you're admitted, you do have a COVID test. But they are saying that if you are asymptomatic, uh, and you have no and contact and no no known contact, should not be. If you're in an area with low prevalence. And so in our area, we have now finally started to see more. And so it's vague. It's very vague. Um, And of course, this does not apply to immunocompromised individuals. This does not apply to surgery or aerosolizing generally, generally generating procedures. So if it's a person who's getting hospitalized for some type of asthma or COPD exacerbation where you're going to have them on a CPAP or a BiPAP, they should be swabbed even if they're asymptomatic because that is an aerosolizing procedure. Recommendation 10. All right. This is me, I guess. So direct SARS-CoV-2 RNA. They recommend testing in asymptomatic individuals who don't have contact, so no known contact, but if they're being hospitalized in areas of high prevalence. So if this is a hot spot or a community with a lot of cases, then even asymptomatic people who get hospitalized should all be screened. Hmm. And they well they they consider communities with prevalences greater than ten percent to be high prevalence. Yeah. So if you're getting ten percent of your tests positive, although or ten percent prevalence in the population. But it, they said if the prevalence is between two and nine percent, consider it. Yep. So, oh. so if it's around, swab them. There you go. Recommendation eleven. Yeah, the panel recommended uh, testing in the immunocompromised asymptomatic individuals. If they're going into the hospital. Regardless of exposure. Regardless. So and this was a strong recommendation. Yeah. And it, would, it defined the immunosuppressants as the cytotoxic chemotherapies, solid organ or stem cell transplantations, long-acting biologic therapy, your humiras, those things, cellular immunotherapy, or high-dose corticosteroids. So, you know, and I think in in this realm... This is also going to be a little bit patient dependent because as physicians, as providers, you know, part of our job is to, to help the full patient. And if a patient is super anxious because they're on a medication that may or may not or kind of is in that gray zone of it, does this make you immunocompromised, I don't see anything wrong with testing them to kind of at least ease their mind and their families and possible public, you know, connection. But that's me. Anyway... <laughs> All right. Recommendation 11, also a strong recommendation. Um, No, that's what you just did. Excuse me. Recommendation number 12, also a strong recommendation. They do recommend testing in asymptomatic individuals before an immunosuppressive procedure, regardless of known exposure. So this is people who are about to undergo chemotherapy, transplants, or start any of those therapies that Kurt just mentioned and it should be performed. So if they're going to have chemotherapy, the testing should be performed um, in a timely manner. So within 48 to 72 hours of the timed or when this procedure is going to happen. And this could be complicated if they're having, you know, chemo once a week. You need to test them every time. That's a lot of tests. Yes. So recommendation 13, they suggest 
testing in asymptomatic individuals without known exposure to COVID-19 who are undergoing major time-sensitive surgeries. So by time-sensitive surgeries, they're meaning surgeries that really need to be done immediately. Uh, appendicitis would be an example. Although it did say within three months. That's time-sensitive. <laughs> Medically necessary within three months. So, yeah, that's, uh, and it should be really performed as close to the surgery as possible, you know, 48 to 72 hours. And, uh, and of course, obviously, that would make sense if you had the testing supplies. Well, uh, right. If you don't have them, well. And obviously, if it's an emergent situation, then it, regardless, you're still going to do the surgery. But if it's, you know, if it's something that can be deferred, um, they do state defer this and, discussion about the PPE for the people that are going to be around this procedure, whether it's anesthesia or whomever, you know, what they need for PPE can then vary based on this test result and um, clinical suspicion. Yeah. They wrote, they didn't really address that whole thing of what if somebody's had, re, should they have repeat testing if they're going to have multiple, that's easy for me to say, multiple procedures over a period of time, like, um, you know, over six months, having three or four. But I would assume most hospitals would retest them. Coming mm -hmm. in. Anyway, recommendation number 14 um, recommends against testing in asymptomatic individuals without a known exposure who are doing a time-sensitive aerosolizing generating procedure when PPE is available. So they don't have any symptoms. They're going to be having something like a bronchoscopy if the PPE is available to totally protect all the healthcare workers, they don't necessarily need a test. Okay. Yes, that's a bizarre recommendation in my opinion, but. Last one. Last one, go for it. 15. 15. They suggest testing in asymptomatic individuals without a known exposure who are undergoing a time-sensitive aerosolizing procedure, bronchoscopy example. When PPE is limited. Yeah, and of course, if testing is available. So again, this is, uh, uh, I think, something that everybody's kind of been doing already. Uh, if there's any aerosolizing procedure of any type, you want to do a COVID. Mm -hmm. I do want to address some of the questions that people brought up because I thought they were quite good. She did address the whole sensitivity of the testing, and she said that about right now, about 70% 70, 70 sensitive this test. So um you know, the false negatives, it's only it's only a 70% accurate test. Um, but with this type of test, the NAAT, the nucleic acid, what we are doing, they should not have false positives. So a positive is a positive unless there's obvious contamination questions. If the results don't make sense, always call the lab. Um, kind of hard to, to know when the timing of all these tests can be, you know, with asymptomatic, presymptomatic, how long they're going to show positives. And then, of course, those serology things are coming later. Yep. But I liked how she said that the lab, even at Mayo Clinic, is pretty much a disaster because there's so many different um, swabs. There's different media. There's different reagents. There's different whatever. So yeah. um, in so a perfect world, there'd be tons of access. But Too many different types of machines, too many different types of reagents and, and testing supplies. So she said it's, it's always challenging. Uh, because of the availability of things. So. so then Dr. Susie came on, Linda Susie from Mercy Hospital. And uh, she, I think, was just, uh, and we just had her kind of talk a little bit about her experience as things slowed down. And um, actually, she felt like things had, uh, 
had really calmed down a little bit where people were kind of taking a breath now and be able to kind of look back at, at how this all had gone and, um, you know, talked a little bit about the in-house testing that they now had, which made things a lot more uh, simple uh, to be able to get those in-house tests, but still having to send some of those out. Well, the one thing I found interesting is when she was talking about, because we had asked her about different medications and what they were doing for treatments, and she did mention that one of the limitations that they had, at least initially, was that in order to even do something like remdesivir or convalescent plasma, you had to get an infectious disease consult, and how those IED docs were just super overwhelmed and over time and all of that. Yeah, and uh, they actually, if they weren't available, then they would have to sit down and run through those things as well with the patient, which uh, uh, was really very time-consuming, so uh, consuming. consuming. So I think that, yeah. Uh, she talked about having roughly 50 patients now in the hospital and uh, uh, some some of these being readmits. And although their numbers have been fairly steady, they're down, and I think everybody in the state has seen that a little bit. Uh, although I think our, you know, our cases, I think today we're up over around 569. So they we just slowly keep inching up. Uh, following the 4th of July. Certainly in our community, we've seen more. Um, you know, Mercy never ran out of any events, so they uh, uh, so they did well that way. Uh, and she did talk a little bit about some of the trials that were done uh, that they were involved in. Still no data really back from, from those. We're hoping that at some point some of that will be available. Um, I can't think of much else. She just felt like it was a, lot, a much lighter feel at work and uh, talked a little bit about how, as a physician, this was maybe a time where uh, you really could feel pretty helpless when there just wasn't a lot that you could do. Right. So. But almost, I, I kind of got the impression the whole team, you know, working together and how it was uh, is almost like a team building exercise, if you will. Yeah. They never had one physician actually get sick. No, she's had several nurses and direct care, you know, bedside, continuous bed care, uh, bedside providers, but... Yeah, no physicians. And then she was on her way to the Boundary Waters. Yes. Good for her. So super exciting. In the next couple of weeks, we have some really uh, powerhouse, I should say, presentations. Dr. Amanda Nascar, infectious disease friend from Essentia in Duluth, is actually putting together a significant PowerPoint this time, but uh, giving a lot of the infectious disease updates. Um, She's pretty excited about this one. And then... Dr. Gopal Punjabi, who is the head of radiology at Hennepin Healthcare, who knows Amanda as well, I'm going to give some of the radiological updates. So, can I, can I say his name once? It's just so cool. Of course, Dr. Go, Gopal Punjabi. <laughs> I love that name. It's the best. I need to change my name. You've said that before. And then on the 21st, super exciting, we have the. I'm going to give him the the as well, Dr. Mike Osterholm coming to hopefully give us all the insider scoop on when this is going to end. I'm yeah. joking. He probably won't. But yeah. this We're man s- predicted this yeah. years Dr. ago. Dr. Patel wanted us to ask him and not her <laughs> when it was over. So I think we'll we'll see if he can help us with that. Uh, and I think after that, I think, isn't DHS going to have somebody on? I know we've talked about yep, having following that, Dr. Chimello. Yep. So, all right. Well, I think we're about done for today. I think uh, we'll let uh, Battle Lakes take it away and... Uh, we will talk with everyone a week from now. Well, next on Sunday we'll do we will release the updated articles, and at some point we are going to plan on addressing all the new back to school recommendations because they're kind of cool. Cause there's so many different people with different opinions. So anyway, battle legs. All right, thanks.
precise man is on his way Searching for the mountain tay in the hills of Connemara Gather up the pots and the oats and can The mash, the corn, the barley and the bran Unlike the double from the excise man Keep the smoke from rising Barney Swing to the left, swing to the right The excise man will dance all night Drinking up the tay in the broad daylight In the hills of Connemara Gather up the pots and the oats and can The mash, the corn, the barley and the bran Unlike the devil from the excise man Keep the smoke from rising Barney Rising.